two autumns ago, I was in the middle of Colorado on a solo trip across the western United States. It was one of the best times of my life. It was an experience that almost never happened though. You see, I'd have to do the trip alone due to my friends and my family being unavailable. Everybody had work and I worked online, so either I went alone or I didn't go at all. I don't know about you, but to me it seemed like absolute torture to have to experience some of the best views this country has to offer with absolutely no one. No one except strangers to hear my oohs and ahs. No one to share a pizza with, be crazy with, or tell me that I'm listening to Christmas music too early in the season at just the beginning of October. Just no one. As an outgoing, extroverted guy, the thought of spending weeks on my own was absolutely dreadful. I was afraid. Afraid of having the time of my life and no one to share it with. Afraid that I might end up liking the solitude, keep to myself and later not let anyone in. Afraid that this trip was just the beginning in not just having to do adventures alone, but maybe life also. I delayed my trips for weeks because I was too afraid to go. Those were weeks worth of memories that I'll never get back. All because I was afraid. So I finally went, deciding to cut my trip short and lessen my suffering because hey, how bad could it be? If I was going to suffer from loneliness, let it be only for a few states and not the entire West as was my initial intent. My hesitation towards a call to adventure isn't unique to me. The Bible is chocked full of people being called to an adventure, but hesitating. Afraid of trusting that he might not do what he says he is going to do. In special mention today, I want to look at the stories of Moses and Joshua. Both of them like me, were called to something they didn't want to embark on. They too hesitated. They were afraid of what following God would mean. Afraid that the requirements and consequences would be too much to handle. Here's God calling Moses, Joshua, and me on an adventure in each of us terrified to take part. What is God to do? How is he to convince three scared men that this adventure would be something they would later look back on with gratitude and joy? How does God convince us his way is worth it? Let me explain. My name is Josue Peralta, and this podcast is a collection of sermons I write throughout the night, always seeming to finish just in time for some oatmeal at dawn. Today's message is entitled, No Spice Required. Hope you enjoy. In Exodus chapter 3, we find a story of Moses and his calling. 
I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along. But if you don't, that's cool too. Thanks for joining me. Again, I'm in Exodus chapter 3 in verse 1, and it says like this. Now Moses kept a flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame and fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Verse 3. And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And the Lord, and when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not thy hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereupon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So we've just set the scene here, and we find ourselves seeing Moses, you know, finding this bush that just won't be consumed with the fire that is, you know, has encapsulated it. And at the same time, he goes upon it and he realizes that it's, you know, God calling him from there. And we see him that his first instinct is to be afraid and let's be honest i we you me would probably be afraid too let's continue in verse 7 and the lord said i have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in egypt and i have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters for i know their sorrows and i am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the egyptians and to bring them up out of that land unto a good land and a large land, unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, and the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Parasites, and the Havitites, and the Jebusites. Verse 9. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me, and I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Verse 11, And Moses said unto God, Who am I, that I should go unto Pharaoh, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Verse 12, And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee, that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. So what is God calling Moses to here? We see him, you know, saying, hey, the your people that are afflicted in Egypt, their time, you know, their time of deliverance has come. And the person that I want to lead them out of there, their leader, the person who is to, you know, show them freedom and lead them to freedom is going to be you. That's the adventure that God is calling Moses to. And not just that, but he lists off a whole list of other nations that he says that he's going to give them 
right? He mentions the Canaanites and give them the place of milk and honey, the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, etc., etc. So he's saying, hey, listen, you are going to be the leader of this entire nation. You're going to take them out of bondage, which is a tremendous undertaking in and of itself, but you will also um, take them with, you will hum and worship upon this mountain, in other words, you'll take them out and bring up up to where you are right now, and then you are going to go ahead and take over the land that flows with milk and honey. If that's not a call to adventure, I don't know what is. And we see Moses, his first instinct, his first reaction, and if we read, you know, just the earlier verses, we, we, we know that Moses is a meek man, right? And, and just know in verse uh, 11, his first instinct is, who am I that I should go into Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children out of, out of Israel, out of Egypt? In other words, I'm a nobody. Who am I to be going to do something like this? He was absolutely afraid that he wasn't anyone worth it who was able to do such an undertaking. He didn't think that he could. So what does God say? Hey, listen, I'm going to be with you in verse 12, and this will be a token unto you that I have sent you. You're going to bring people to serve God upon this mountain. So what does Moses do? He puts another barrier. He says, verse 13, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name, and what shall I say unto them? In other words, not only am I not good enough, but my authority, the person leading me to do all this, it's not clear to me. And if it's not clear to me, it's definitely not going to be clear to them. Who sent me? You know, because of, of my own authority, I don't trust myself that this is, you know, that they're going to take me seriously. So they're going to say, who's my boss for me to follow you? And verse 14 said, And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. Verse 15, And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. So again, Moses is being called to an adventure, and Moses is scared to go on this adventure. Verse 11, he says, Hey, who am I to be doing something like this? Verse 13, he says, Hey, you know, who sent me? Because it's obviously not under my own authority. And then if we read just a little bit further ahead in verse 4, it says, and Moses had answered, you know, he's continuing this dialogue with God. And he says, in chapter 4 and verse 1, and Moses answered and said, but behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. In other words, it doesn't matter what I say, they're not going to believe me. After every single objection that Moses puts up, we find God just quelling one after the other, giving them reasons after reasons. And in verse 10 again, we find ourselves reading about Moses where he says unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant, but I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And again in verse 13, and he said, O my Lord, 
send, I pray thee, by thy hand of him of whom thou wilt send. In other words, we found just in these five verses, five reasons that he's just telling people, hey, or he's, or she's saying, we find ourselves five reasons of him telling God, hey, this is a bad idea. I'm not the right guy for this. I'm not the right guy for this. I'm scared. First of all, who am I? Second of all, who sent me? Third of all, they won't even believe me. Fourth of all, I'm not eloquent. And like we just read in verse 13, where I'll read again, and he said, Oh my Lord, I pray thee, send, I pray thee, by the hand of him who thou wilt send. In other words, send someone else. Moses here is offered the adventure of a lifetime and almost missed it due to fear. Interestingly enough, that kind of spirit of fear, I mean, it's, I mean, let's be honest, it's not unfounded. To do such an undertaking is an incredible, it's an incredible feat, and not to mention the things that it's going to have to go through to make all of that happen. So, in Moses' mind, his fear is based on reality, when God's trying to offer him a new reality, a new adventure that quells all of those fears. In Joshua chapter 1, we find that his successor had a similar problem. After Moses' death, he was chosen to be the leader of that same people. And, you know, starting to read in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 1, we find God laying out his plan for Joshua, laying out what he would accomplish if he were to accept his mission. I'll start reading in chapter 1, which says, Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that, will, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses, like we read in uh, Exodus chapter 3. Verse 4, From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. Verse 5, There shall not be any man be able to stand before thee in all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so will I be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. In verse 6, we begin to see Joshua's mindset in all of this. In his call to adventure, God inserts in there to, quote-unquote, be strong and of a good courage. Now, that comes out of nowhere because, you know, in verses 1 through 5, we just hear promise after promise after promise after promise. And then he kind of interrupts that and says, hey, you know what? Just only be strong and of a good courage. It's showing that, you know, he's, uh, he, he's showing and he's acknowledging that Joshua is afraid and honestly encapsulated by cowardice. Notice how I know, continuing in verse 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law which Moses thy servant commanded thee. Turn not, to, turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. Verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, 
but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then shalt thou make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Verse 9. Have not I commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For thy Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. Did you catch that? What was the phrase being repeated over and over and over again in those three verses? Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Only be strong and of good courage. All of that was repeated not once, not twice, but three times in a span of just four verses. Repetition of this kind is indicative of a mind that's in turmoil, just completely engrossed in fear. I mean, put yourself in Joshua's shoes. He's seen firsthand what being a leader was like and where it could lead. He knew of the hardness that encapsulated the people's hearts. Dealing with them had driven Moses to disobey God to the point where he didn't get to see his mission all the way through. Notice that he, again, kind of repeats or reiterates what he had told Moses before in verse 9 where he says, you know, number one, who commanded you? It is, have not I commanded thee? And at the end of the verse, for it is the Lord thy God who was with thee whithersoever thou goest. All the different things that Moses was afraid of, we see a lot of those elements here also represented and God is addressing every single one of them because Joshua too is terrified. That same people that God had offered Moses to replace with a new people earlier on in the text are now to be the charge of Joshua. And that's just the internal part of the things that are making him scared. There's a ton of enemies without that threaten that very people that he's now being charged with. All of this was to be inherited by Joshua. Such an undertaking takes strength and takes courage. The very thing that God was encouraging from him. To recap, we find Moses completely terrified to lead the people. Number two, we find Joshua again completely terrified to lead the people. And then there was me, you know, completely terrified to go on this adventure that God was calling me to. And let's be honest, compared to them, my fears aren't even worth noting. Where I felt a fear of having to suffer loneliness leading an entire multitude his actual and measurable reasons to fear. But the point still stands. God had a calling for the three of us, for each of us, and all of us hesitated in fear. We weren't the only ones either. Just about every time an angel appears to someone in the Bible, I don't know if you knew this, the first words usually out of their mouth is, fear not, fear not, fear not. Because God knows that we're afraid. And so we have God, excited to share a vision and an amazing journey with me, with Joshua, with Moses, and with you and his people, but finds them, finds me fearful both of the journey and fearful of even him. What is God to do knowing, you know, he has something amazing and tailored for each recipient, but finds him too afraid to receive it and even doubting him and his intentions? What is he to do? To me, it seems that, you know, like a succulent burger too big for one single bite, he bids us take the one bite at a time approach. 
In Psalm 34, 8, the psalmist writes the following. He says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man that trusteth in him. And now I find it interesting that he uses the word taste so specifically. I mean, why not any other word? Why not try and see? Why not wait and see? But he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Almost like he couldn't find anything else that would capture the idea other than, you know, taste and food. I'm sure he, like us, had some foods that only he liked after trying them first. Um, For me, I gotta be honest, it was lasagna. I did not like lasagna at first. No idea why. I don't know how to answer that question. I'm not sure what 10-year-old Josue was thinking. Lasagna is absolutely freaking delicious. But at first, I didn't like it. But here's the point. One of God's solutions to quell our fears of embarking on his adventures is just that. Taking it one bite at a time, or in other words, one step at a time. For Moses in chapter 4, like we where we left off, his first steps, or his one bites at a time, consisted of trusting God in small demonstrations of his power. In verse 2, it reads, And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thy hand? And he said, A rod. Verse 3, And he said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. In verse 5, God continues, That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the Lord, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. He specifies that they, meaning the Israelites, may believe. But every after every single objection, God gives something to him, and then he escalates the demonstrations by, you know, even putting a rod on the ground and it becoming a serpent. And there are other ones that, that we won't go into. But the point is this. When he specifies that th- that those demonstrations are for them to believe, the first one who needed to believe was Moses himself. And so he gave him that sign. Two more similar signs were given to Moses that if there were any remaining doubt that God wouldn't come through, now they were gone. Now, in reference to Joshua, do you remember how God needed to remind him three times that, you know, to be strong and be courageous? Not only did it highlight his state of mind, but also God's care for Joshua. His vision for him started at a height of giving him all the land of his enemies in verse 4. And he's like, okay, you know what? Okay, I have to dumb it down to the point where he's it's palatable for him. And then eventually ending in a simplified version at the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest, in verse 9. Moses needed baby steps. Joshua needed baby steps. I needed baby steps. Nibbles. That was the solution that God has for them. And it's his solution for us now. Let me say again that the word taste being used here is in no wise an accident. Taste and trust have a lot of parallels that aren't immediately obvious. Let's take lasagna for example. Lasagna is made up of ingredients that on their own aren't particularly appetizing. You know, you have the unprocessed grain to make the dough that then you need to make the pasta. You know, you have the tomatoes, which, by the way, are in fact delicious on their own. Garlic, 
that isn't tasty on its own to make a delicious sauce, the cheese, and a host of other things. I'll tell you a little story about my favorite lasagna, and actually, now that I love it, a few years ago now, my um, ex-girlfriend was here in the States visiting me from Europe. She's Italian from her mom's side, who just happened to be visiting with her that one time. And, uh, you know, we had a good time, had a wonderful time, and one of the nights that she was here, um, we asked her mama to see if she could make some authentic Italian cuisine for us. I mean, you know, we already have her here, let's, let's take advantage, and I definitely wanted a taste of it. Now, I'm sure you're aware of Italian food and how it's good, and, you know, you have your favorite Italian restaurants or what have you, or maybe you don't. I recommend you find one. But the point is this. You may have tasted Italian food in your life, but I guarantee you that only a few of you are acquainted with food from an Italian. I'll promise you, they are absolutely two different things. Food from an Italian is so much superior, I can hardly explain it. Now, when we first asked her to make the lasagna, the first thing that, you know, she was completely down. She's like, yeah, absolutely, I got you guys. It's, 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 it's going to be delicious. And the first thing that she said, apart from that, was that she lamented that the quality of vegetables she was accustomed to back home weren't available here. In Europe, they have, you know, stricter GMO laws or what have you. And um, the, just everything there tastes better. I mean, I've never heard anybody say the opposite. But the point is, is that she's used to much better tasting vegetables. And, you know, she's going to try to give it her best. But just, you know, for us to temper our expectations because she doesn't have all, all the amazing ingredients. Or, just, you know, in terms of quality that she's used to. And, you know, while she said that, you know, she went to work. She got it all done. And let me tell you, that woman produced one of the best meals I have ever tasted up until that point, and even up until now. Even with one hand figuratively tied behind her back, she produced an absolute masterpiece. And as I sit here, I want to describe to you the perfect mix of her handmade sauce and the cheeses and how it all went together. I'd love to describe to you the supple texture and the beauty of seeing the green verdure in that sea of red wonderful sauce. I just can't. You'd think you've tasted lasagna before, but I promise you again, if it wasn't from the hands of Letizia, you have not tasted the best lasagna. I speak of that lasagna as if it was the best ever made, but I know she can do a lot better. Do you remember how she said that, you know, she could, you know, to keep our, our, our expectations tempered because, you know, we don't have the same quality of ingredients like she has over there. I'm telling you, it was still amazing. But now, if I were to go over there with those t top-notch ingredients, that would be the best lasagna ever, not the one I had. And I kid you not, to this day, my family still mentions and talks about that lasagna. Here's kind of the point in all of this. Like a chef, God knows that the individual ingredients of life, of the journey that he bids us on, don't seem pleasurable or tasteful. Like a chef, he takes the distasteful parts of it and makes it a work of art, like Letizia's lasagna was a work of art. He's confident in his product and urges you, me, to give it a nibble, knowing that you'll like it much more than you think you will. 
it's nearly impossible for me to describe the taste of Letitia's lasagna just on the sheer nature of taste. It's hard to describe a taste, period. We describe tastes by comparing them to other things we've tasted, or even smells, or things we see, but it's just very, very strange, and even hard to replicate taste. But again, it's even harder to describe taste. When I speak of her lasagna, you imagine other lasagnas you've tasted and how wonderful they were. But that's not quite right in terms of what her lasagna actually was like. In a similar way, my faith journey can resonate and perhaps sound familiar to you, but it's really through experience, experiencing it yourself that you can really get the full effect of it. Not to mention, both are better when experienced rather than described. Now, if I wanted the best lasagna in the world, all I'd have to do is hop on a flight to Europe and with Letitia's superior ingredients, she can make it even better. And I know she can do it even better because her recipe is still the same. And I know it's the lasagna I'm expecting, you know, just, you know, amped up to 11 because she has a recipe. She uses a recipe and I know that the lasagna I'm expecting is just going to be so much better because of it. In a similar way, time with God can be repeated for an increased effect. And just like I know Letizia's lasagna has gotten better with years and years of practice, spending time with God also gets better with time. Where she was limited by subpar ingredients compared to those two, she, the ones she had access here, the ones she makes now are elite. Likewise, the Christian life and experience is better with fresher experiences of God's love and God's providence. The fresher is always better. It's been years now since that dinner. Try as I might to hold on to that memory of that delicious taste of that lasagna, it fades every year. Fresher is always better. To get the best experience of Letitia's lasagna, all I needed was a bite, and I was hooked. And the bite size for me was slimming down my scope and clinging to the promise that everything was going to be alright. In practical terms, it meant instead of roaming through the entire west as it was the original plan, I would just hit the coast, a few things on the way, like Zion National Park and the Grand Canyon and Horseshoe Bend and things like that, and then come home. The way home was going to be Route 66 to make it a little bit more interesting, but that was kind of the entire plan. Just hit that and go home. Long story short though, I left and ended up having a great time. I ended up enjoying the time to myself. I had a lot of time to just think. Think about life, where I was headed, and what I wanted out of it. I came to enjoy that time alone, as weird as it sounds now. The oohs and the ahs that I was sad to not have anyone to share with, I ended up sharing with strangers, which I eventually came to know. One of those was this absolutely gorgeous girl who was on a girl's trip visiting some friends. We had a wonderful time together, and to this day, I still think about her sometimes. I'm glad we got to spend some time together. There was also this French couple who had been traveling for months when I'm, who I met at Horseshoe Bend in Arizona. I even reconnected with a high school classmate of mine who was finishing up PA school in Nevada. He's doing good and he's almost done. Those were some good times. One mile turned to two, 
two turned into arriving home almost two weeks later than planned. Time just flew. I had pulled up just in time for Thanksgiving with a whole lot to with a whole lot more to be grateful for. For example, God protecting me on the journey, allowing me to see wondrous views, and in special mention the single most beautiful sunset this world has ever seen off the California coast. I saw it driving up to California one on my way to Big Sur. Oh my goodness, that was absolutely beautiful. I tasted and saw that God was good. I took it one mile at a time and I enjoyed it. And he provided. He provided company for me. He provided everything that I needed, especially somebody to share it, like I said, those oohs and those ahs. My life hasn't been the same since. Most of my trip these days are solo ones, and I enjoy them all the same, and sometimes even more. Had I not ventured to even leave on that trip, I wouldn't have been to all the places I've found myself traveling to in the last few years. Because my friends are still working, or busy, or committed, along with my family. And so if I want to do those things, I have to do them alone. Had I continued listening to the voice of fear, I wouldn't be where I am today. I wouldn't have a budding business that affords me such privileges, or even be the man that I am today. The point is to not to listen to that fear. All I had to do was take it one mile at a time, one bite at a time. Frankly, I'm scared to know where I had been had I not taken that one small leap. Strange that that would be a turning point in my life, you know, venturing out to be alone, but it was. There are some, however, who don't dare to taste the adventure that God has for them and, overcome by fear, turn the substitute to spice up their life. A bit analogous to, you know, Takis, that spicy corn snack that main calling card is to be spicy and whatnot. Without that, they're absolutely nothing, let's be honest. Some people resort to affairs to spice up their life. Some people resort to narcotics to spice up their life. Some people resort to liquor and the confidence that that gives, right, to spice up their life. All of it, like a taki, is all spice, none of the substance. The adventure that God has for you, for me, have everything the vices of life pretend to offer and more. None of that meaningless spice required. Taste and see for yourself, because like tries I might to describe the deliciousness of Letitia's lasagna, I can't do it justice. It's by trying out God's adventure for you, one bite at a time, that you'll realize it's the best decision you will have ever made. Thanks for joining me. I'm looking forward to spending some time again with you soon. Cheers.